0: This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark, and this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. Please join us as we welcome Dr. Tama Bryant Davis, known to her many followers online as Dr. Tama. Dr. Tama is a licensed psychologist, ordained minister, and sacred artist who's worked nationally and globally to provide relief and empowerment to marginalized persons. She is also a professor at Pepperdine University with a list of publications and accolades too long for this broadcast. Welcome, Dr. Tama. We're glad you're here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Reading through
0: the, the work that you've done, you, ha- you have such a unique combination of, of spirituality and therapy and artistic practice. Can you summarize for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, what it is that you, you do and what you've been doing?
1: Yes. So I would say the overarching theme is healing. And I feel that is a calling, we think uh, vocationally, and I facilitate healing through psychological practice, through ministry, uh, through the expressive arts. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and uh, a professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, where I'm teaching the next generation of therapists, both those who are getting their master's and their doctorate. I'm an ordained elder and minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I also love the expressive arts, both personally and in terms of public sharing, primarily dance, spoken word and theater. Wow, that's
0: quite a a combination. It is. It's an honor
2: to have you with us today, Dr. Tama.
1: Oh, thank you. When you say um, to combine psychology
2: into uh, your spiritual practice, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So this has been a really important part of my work. I should first say in terms of my personal narrative, what got me into the field of psychology uh, was my dad was a pastor. He's now retired. Mm -hmm. And for those who are getting the audio and not a visual, I'm African-American. And so in the African-American community, many people hold a stigma about therapy and instead will go talk to their pastor. And so growing up, many people at all times of day and night would call our home in crisis for pastoral counseling. And what, even though I have a brother who's two years older, it really became, I guess, a thing that when people would call the house and my parents weren't home, I would be the one to take the call. And I do believe that in some ways healers are born, that some people have an emotional capacity for that space. Then when I found out that there is a job where you do that full time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) being a listener and bearing witness. And so coming out of uh, that foundation of faith, religion, spirituality, and then coming into the field, what I found is that most psychology programs don't talk a lot about religion. And uh, a colleague of mine at Pepperdine, Dr. Ed Schafransky, did a study and found that on average, mental health professionals are less likely to endorse a religious orientation than the general public. So then you have people who are largely people of faith being treated primarily by people who are not. And so then you would understand how it gets left out of the space because Mm -hmm. if it's not a priority of the person facilitating the process, they don't even think to ask about it, to incorporate it, And so it was later in my journey, reading and studying and developing ways of integrating them because a big part of therapy is meaning making. And if a core part of the way you make meaning and purpose of your life is through your faith, to not have that named is negligent, if not harmful. And so it actually is more of a natural fit. And interestingly, as I've done research on it, Early pioneers in psychology were actually people of faith. And it was only once there was a shift of us wanting to be looked at as a hard science of mm-hmm. like, we just do these three steps and it makes these outcomes and we can control it, that it started shifting away from that orientation. So there's actually not a dichotomy of when we talk about wholeness and wellness, mind, body, and spirit, and the importance of addressing all of those.
2: Do you find resistance with psychologists and others in the profession uh, about what you
0: do?
1: As opposed to resistance, what I find is more an, I'll say, ignorance or an unknowing. So what will happen then is, for example, if I'm sitting in a clinical meeting and someone will throw out this term hyper religiosity, And I will raise the question, what is that? (laughs) Right. How much is too much? (laughs) Right. Exactly. You know, if you didn't grow up going to church at all and somebody goes multiple times a week, that might sound hyper to you. Right. Uh, So that is problematic and very subjective. Or for someone who has no prayer life if a parent is trying to make a decision about their child and they say, I need to pray about it and see what God says. And I've even discovered some Christians who don't believe God speaks. So for people who uh, have that theology or or lack of theology, there needs to be an education because there are times when people are expressing things that are concerning. But if you have no understanding of that space, that you don't know how to tease that apart. So for example, even with fasting. So I'm familiar with fasting, I've gone on fast, but there is a way clinically where a person will speak, where flags will go up, where this is now not a spiritual practice, but it can be a spiritualizing of a deeper broken issue. But you would need to understand that frame and appreciation of what that is to be able to hear uh, the nuance.
0: Wow. You know, an analogy to that that I've seen, um, one of my many jobs uh, is that I work in advertising during the week. And I had a client that was a pharmaceutical company that was working in pain medicine. And we were doing some market research and spirituality came up in those conversations that pain doctors would talk about their patients and their spiritual health Because it was so tied with the pain that they were feeling physically. Is that something that you encounter in in people that you talk with?
1: Definitely. And, you know, and that we talk about that mind, body, spirit piece, you know, there's research that even shows the role that prayer and faith can have in pain management and recovery from surgery and a sense of hope or what people are hoping for. But, you know, I'll muddy the waters and say, I've also worked with a couple of doctors, Christian doctors, saying, so what does it mean to die well and to die in faith, death readiness? Because sometimes with with holding on to hope and faith that we're going to just always recover, that people don't take responsibility for wills or making decisions about that whole journey and process. A good friend of medical doctor, Dr. Robinson, Dr. Robinson, she starts her presentation by saying, I want you to think about every person who was healed in the Bible. And now, aside from Jesus, they are all dead. Lazarus is now dead, right? <laughs> so we need to talk about it and give space for that, because I think it is a challenging that if someone is struggling with cancer or any illness that a part of us wants to respond with, have faith no matter what, you're going to make it. Uh, and eventually we do all die.
0: Wow. And that's something that a lot of people don't want to face. Right. One thing to kind of flip the conversation outside, we we're talking about how, you know, the healing power of spirituality and, the, and how religion can comfort and heal one thing that we've talked about throughout the series Radical Love Live is that we've often encountered people who are hurt or wounded in spiritual spaces, in religious spaces, and, and are often not connected with their spirituality now because of that. Is religious trauma, I guess is what you would call it. I don't know if there's a true like, mm-hmm. DSM yeah. diagnostic term for it, but mm-hmm. is that something that you encounter in the work that you do?
1: Yes, very much so. Uh, Religious abuse is often how it's framed, and that can be verbal, emotional, financial, physical, sexual, all of the different ways in which people are violated uh, in that space. And one of the important parts of that healing work is without apology, without filter, without justification to have someone, one, bear witness. A lot of times in church spaces, people don't want to hear it. They take it as complaining or do not talk about the anointed man of God or woman of God. So there can be a lot of silencing. So, one, just creating the space where people can speak about what happened and shatter that silence and shame. And then, without any dilution, to say that that was wrong, right? To say that that should not have happened to you. Because often, And I think it is out of Christian's desire to make meaning out of things. We can say things that are very harmful and that really are excuses. An example of that will be people who were molested and a minister or someone will say, well, God let that happen to test your faith. What? Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's been just absolutely horrible horrible. So you imagine like a person in authority saying that to you, that this is your test. Do you still love God? Right? Like, are you kidding me? Or in marital counseling, the number of ministers, and let me say as someone who did like a master's of divinity, that we only had one semester on pastoral counseling. And that's in most Mm -hmm. programs. And I will say in the course I took, which was a wonderful course, the focus really was on primarily on bereavement and grief. Helping people with grief. So, all these other issues of partner abuse, child abuse, sexual assault, there was no mention. And now you're saying this is the community expert for us to go to to walk through this process. So, you know, in some ways, ministers can be set up to fail and then can be repeating things that were said to them or nothing was ever said to them. So, they're making it up as they go along and it's very harmful or around domestic violence or intimate partner violence. You know, the message is often submission. If you were submitting, I'm sure they would be nice to you. And then saying a prayer and sending people back home. So there has not been a message of accountability in our faith. There has been a pressure on victims for forgiveness. And you better hurry up and forgive or else God is not going to forgive you. So this is very problematic and toxic. I know that word is overuse, uh, mm-hmm. but it is, mm-hmm. a, it's an additional abuse. And that's what some people have talked about is experiencing, so one, of course, is when the faith leaders or people in power in the church abuse you. Another is when you are ab- experiencing abuse or disrespect and you go to them and they shame and blame you. So all of those things can make it hard to connect with God usually when we talk about healing trauma, we identify what are the triggers? What are things that remind you of what happened? Mm -hmm. So if the people who did this to me were up there with the robe on or had the cross on, or it was after a prayer meeting or people who were molested at church at the faith summer camp. So all of those things become connected. And so, you know, a part of that healing is we start to piece through after honoring the story, hearing the story, is piecing through the cognitive distortions. And so what is a distortion? Is in order to make meaning of it in the moment, I often have to overgeneralize because I'm trying to stay safe. So then therefore, if this person who was wearing a cross did that, that is what people with crosses do, right? So then being able to honor the need for safety and that this was wrong. And unfortunately, it is not rare. So we wouldn't say like, this is the only person who has done something like that. But to be able to distinguish what is safe and what is unsafe and what is something supposed to be ideally. And then what does it look like when people are walking it out? I would say growing up in church, I always had an understanding that there are broken people who are present. But I think especially those who come to church later, there can be this hope or expectation that this is going to be some different kind of people, right? They're like out in the world, they were shady people, they were ego people, they were mean people, but now I love Jesus and I'm going to go in this place and everyone here is going to be loving, kind, and whole. And then when they discover the ugliness, the messiness that is very much present, that can be very devastating and cause people to want to release the whole thing
2: beautifully said that's part of my story um i not as sexual but still have abuse and it wasn't it wasn't even out of meanness it was just their interpretation of scriptures but yet still broke me right and so i listen to what you say and it's i'm just reeling in 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 goodness out of all this but i feel like what you're sharing with us is almost like the lone voice out because it, you just said it. These are not isolated cases. There's a lot of people that have been abused for whatever reason.
1: Why aren't
2: more people talking about this? Why? What is it going to take to get us to the point where we're honest with ourselves? And you said it. We're all messy. It's a human experience. Mm-hmm. And I always lean on, as, as Kelly knows, you know, Pierre Teilhard de quote of we're not human beings having spiritual experiences. Rather, we're spiritual beings having human experiences. And so that allows me to have a lot of kindness where I couldn't otherwise, where I just get it that it's messy to have the human experience. But what is it going to take to where we have this kind of conversation? like Where it's, it's broad, it's bold, it's out there, where it opens those spaces for healing. Like there's so many people out there that are hurt and have turned away from their spirituality. And like you said, it could be as simple as the finding a looking mm-hmm. at the cross and going, I can't do this. And and therefore, I will sacrifice my own innate spirituality Mm -hmm. because of this, and I can't cope. Yeah. I I mean, I'm speaking the question, but what is it going to take?
1: I think it's going to, not only it's going to, but it is coming from both directions, from the top and from the people. And when I say from the top, needing to have diverse voices represented who then will have the courage to speak, right? Because sometimes people get so enamored with power, that they are promoted and silent. So taking that risk of rejection or consequence, but I have this moment, you know, depending on your church, how long the homily or sermon is, you have like 20 minutes, some people take 45, (laughs) to speak truth. (laughs) And like, this is a very powerful place and uh, it can be transformative. I will never forget, um, I was counseling a young woman And she grew up in a small church, and she said the only way she knew what was happening to her was wrong, her father was molesting her, was one day for Women's Day, they had a guest preacher, and this woman got up there and preached about the story of Tamar and talked about sexual violence. And she said, as a kid, I was sitting there, and I said, that's what's happening to me. She said, they never invited that lady back. But that moment changed her life. Right, gave her something to hold on to until she could get out of that house. The issue of child abuse often gets spiritualized. And, you know, we go behind the scripture of spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, if you go talk to people who are actual shepherds and then just go around brutalizing sheep with their rods, right? So it's what is what is going on here? What is really going on? And and you know, and people are don't like it, right? And they will push back and say, you know, well, getting beat is what saved my life and what made me who I am today, you know? Or they'll say, you know, my parents were trying to keep me out of jail. If you think the people in jail never got a beating, you don't understand who's been incarcerated, right? So it is taking the courageous moment and you can pace yourself sometimes you just drop a seat and leave it and the people are like, did you say blah, blah, blah? Just drop it and walk away. It doesn't have to be the whole sermon. And and then what is happening on the other side is people are choosing with their feet, right? So when you have churches that are not speaking to their needs and issues, they can stop giving and they stop attending. And so then they are gravitating toward those who are more transparent, who will speak more truth. There is power, power in the microphone and power with our feet to be able to create the spaces that are healing and helpful. And one of the things that was really important for me was uh, Renita Weems, who's my godmother. She's a womanist theologian and she used this term I had never heard before. And that was critical thinking Christians. And I was yeah. like, you know, like, what is that? Like, I didn't know you could dissect a verse, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't know you could dissect a story to say whose voice didn't we hear in this, right? They talk about these daughters, but we never got to hear the daughters speak, right? So what might their experience be? And so as you talk about kind of troubling the text or complicating the text or asking questions of the text will lead us into a place of more truth.
2: Do you feel in your spiritual work and with your uh, contemporaries other preachers and ministers that are working within uh, the spiritual community, do you feel a change?
1: Yes. So there are, I guess, multiple areas of change and some people are changing in some categories, but not others, right? We have different levels of openness. So what I mean by that, for example, is growing up in the Black church, we regularly integrate conversations about justice, Mm -hmm. right? So I didn't grow up with this idea of I'm so Jesus-minded that I can't talk about what's happening in the world. So it was later that I discovered that there are other churches where you can gather Sunday after Sunday and never talk about anything that's not 2,000 years ago. So I think in those spaces, there are more people growing In terms of addressing the issues of justice of the day, and there still is, I think, a pull for a lot of what we would call both sides tap dancing, Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't want to make anybody mad because then they might leave and then they might not give money. And if I just say God is love, then no one will be upset with me. Well, what they're discovering is in their silence, they're still upsetting people and neglecting people. So I do see a growth in some areas, but there is also a backlash where some people are like, at this church, we're going to be Bible only. And if it's not a verse in here, we're not going to say it. And using that as an excuse for silence and cowardice.
0: Well, wait till they get to the the books of the prophets. They'll find a little social justice in there. Come on,
1: exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, you
0: speak about social justice and what's going on today. And, you know, we've been talking about trauma. We've been talking about religious trauma. It's almost like our whole society is going through a trauma right now or recognizing a trauma that they've been going through for a long time. You know, a month ago, we were talking about the pandemic. And since then... On top of that, there's a huge uprising about social justice, about racial justice in America. Mm -hmm. How are you counseling people that come to you with that kind of pain? What kind of message are you delivering around that today?
1: Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad for your framing because we're dealing with all of it, like a medical global trauma, global pandemic, Mm -hmm. COVID-19, which is disproportionately affecting communities of color, Mm -hmm. and disproportionately affecting people who are low-income, hourly, essential workers. And we are also facing and have continued to face racial trauma and terror. And so those pieces happening simultaneously, every clinician I know now is full, right? Because people are overwhelmed, and even those who had a stigma about going to therapy are so overwhelmed that they are breaking through that barrier and reaching out for help. So I really start from a place of the importance for self-compassion and compassion for other people, because this is a lot, and the ways in which we are affected by it can show up differently. And if you don't connect the dots, then you might just sit there thinking, what's wrong with me, right? Because you have not connected what you are feeling and experiencing to what is happening, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the trauma of racism, and the trauma of COVID. Some people are experiencing depression, feeling of hopelessness or powerlessness. Some people are feeling anxious. And I wanna pause here to connect that with our earlier conversation around religion. I was doing a panel where they took questions and there was a woman who asked a question who said, she's a nurse, but she's a Christian and she feels guilty for being afraid because she knows God teaches us not to be afraid. Mm. Uh, That broke my heart because it's like, what are we presenting that we do not leave room for people's humanity? Of course, you're walking into a COVID unit every day. You're going to have some anxiety and God is not sitting there like, "Mm, mm, mm. Oh, you of little faith. How dare you be nervous? Right? That's not who God is. So Compassion for ourselves about our anxieties related to ourselves. When we talk about Black parents sending their children out, sons and their daughters, of are they going to return safely around COVID? Are my elders going to be okay? People who are not allowed to see and, you know, what is happening with that? Depression, fear. For some, their depression shows up as irritability. And so it looks like everybody's just getting on my nerves,
0: yeah. right? I think, I, think I got on a my little nerves bit of that. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's like <laughs> on edge, like don't, don't. And then anger. And I will say especially in Christian circles, a lot of people are uncomfortable with anger mm. and try to dilute it and mute it. But there can be something righteous about anger that when things are not just, when things are not what God deemed they should be, this is outrageous, and it is angering. And some people have rage about it. And then it would just be what do I do with that anger to be able to channel it into creating change versus being consumed by it. And then some people I I should name and you know, among those who are listening may be in this category as well. Some people feel numb, where it's like, if you have over 100,000 people here have died, And you're seeing people brutalized on the street by their own government, unarmed people beaten down, hit with rubber bullets that are not all rubber. When you're seeing all of that, if you feel nothing, I want you to know that's also a trauma response, that there is often a history that has taught you to shut down and disconnect from yourself and to disconnect from what is happening. So for us to be able to have uh, compassion and then look at controlling the things that are within our control, mm-hmm. right? So with COVID, washing the hands or the mask or this kind of social distancing, for racism, it is a piece of empowerment of what is in my control to do because you know, what makes it particularly traumatizing is when it creates a sense of hopelessness and powerlessness and when it is state sanctioned, uh, meaning that people do not face consequence for harming you because you are seen as insignificant. All of those things can create such a sense of despair. It's important to cultivate for people, even children, young people, what can I do? So for some people that's marching, which can be awareness raising, and it can be a feeling of unity, especially now because we're seeing so many people from different ages and uh, all 50 states and all of that Mm -hmm. being engaged. But there are other ways to be involved in the movement as well. You know, you look at what your skill set is, and then that's what you can bring to the table. So I'm a psychologist, so I do healing work and recognizing healing work is a part of activism. If you are a parent, what does it mean to raise an anti-racist child intentionally? Full conversation, if you have resource to be able to donate, to vote, to engage in policies that are gonna promote equity. If you're in technology space, this is an interesting one, I just saw this past week, that someone has developed this app where you can say, Siri, I'm being pulled over, and your phone will text a, a contact person of your choice, the screen will go black and it will start recording the whole interaction and immediately put that video on a cloud and send it to your contact person. Wow. Like, so whoever did that, they might not be marching in the street, but they know technology and they're like, I'm going to create an app for the movement, right? <laughs> there can be something empowering about finding your lane and uh, also recognizing people have talked about forms of resistance. So rest, is resistance, I would say, especially for people of color. Because since we got here, since we were brought here, it was for labor. And so our worth has been tied to our busyness. And we have had hanging over us the mythology that we are somehow lazy. So you will then see people of color who are constantly moving. We even have language, we say grinding, I'm on my grind, I'm gonna hustle, like all of these things. And so how radical it is for me to be absolutely still, And silent and not laboring for anyone else but to be with me and my God that is an act of resistance loving is an act of resistance because oppression teaches us not to trust and so when we build relationship and connection and community that's an act of resistance joy is an act of resistance. So when you see, especially when I see people protesting and they break out and start dancing, right? It's like, how dare you, like how bodacious to dance in the middle of a revolution? (laughs) I just, I love that, right? I love it because it is like with everything that is trying to dehumanize us, we refuse to be robots, right? That we will sing, we will dance, we will laugh, we will love on each other, we will pray and we will march and we will organize and some of us will run for office. That's great. Amen. <laughs> in the
0: midst of all this, one of the things that has come up for us a lot is what white people can do in the midst of an uprising about racism. And, you know, and certainly some of the things that you've talked about, you know, I'm a dad, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about, you know, being anti-racist in our home. But one of the things that is for us to do is talk amongst one another and we find ourselves doing this a lot talk about white privilege what it means uh, particularly to people who are you know white people who are working class who go like i work my butt off all the time what is this privilege that you're talking about i'm like well how do you feel when you get pulled over by a police officer or you feel like you could say you know i'm sorry i was speeding or do you feel like you have to put your hands on the dashboard Mm -hmm. until given permission those are two very different experiences and I, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of a lot of people in white America who who are not even aware of the differences, or the, or willfully not seeing them.
1: Yes, so important, and and I'm glad you raised it as it relates to people who are working class or low income, because as soon as they hear privilege, then they can uh, assume that means wealthy, or even for white people who are wealthy they can think that you are uh, erasing their work, right? So they'll say, my grandparents worked really hard. So white privilege does not mean you have done no work. What it means is it's an unearned asset. So unearned means you didn't do anything to, to uh, earn being white, right? You just happen to be born white. And then you get some benefits associated with your whiteness that you did not have to do anything for. Right, so it's not that did you go to work and work your 40 hours or whatever to get your paycheck, but as you named for example with police officers, that they are more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. When we have even, it's in every area of our lives and we've done studies with medical doctors, medical doctors are more likely to believe people of color are faking pain Mm -hmm. to get drugs and they will not give them pain medication when they are in the hospital in pain. And so you just showing up with your white skin and saying, I'm hurting, you're going to be taken more seriously. That in classes that teachers hold biases of who they assume is going to be smart, Um, and not only the teachers, but other students. When we do studies of children of different races and them saying point to the smart child and they will point to the white child. People, children of different races, because they have been presented with that. And if you are sitting there listening and thinking, well, it's because we're smarter, then you really have bought into the lie <laughs> and the mythology wow. of whiteness being innocence. Even this idea that people are more likely to assume that a black or brown man is a rapist, part of my focus is sexual trauma. And it was amazing to me when I was at uh, Princeton University and I was telling them that you are more likely to be raped by someone of your same race across the board. That's just more pervasive. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't believe me and insisted that I show them the research. Because of course, as a black woman, I must be biased in making this up. And when you think about it, it just makes sense because we often operate in segregated spaces. So the people who are more likely to rape you are the people who have access to you who are more likely to be people of your own community. But when it has been so ingrained in you fear black and brown men and white men are going to be safe, this is another area of privilege. So it is the assumptions, the benefit of the doubt that people give you, even uh, when you think about jury pools, that people will assume a person of color cannot be fair on a jury, but white people can be on anyone's jury. We can put them on a jury for a white person, for a person of color, because they're just going to be more fair-minded. So all of those are the unearned assets that you receive. One of the things I've appreciated now with all these young people on TikTok, I was like white woke young people are posting videos of examples of them reaping it's a white privilege. And one of the videos I was watching, I have a teenage daughter, so I have to see all these TikToks. (laughs) One of uh, the girls was talking about, she's a white female. She and some of her friends were uh, selling drugs and she was arrested. Uh, Her parents um, came to get her. They released her and said they're sure that she just was caught up with the wrong crowd and that she's a good kid and she can just go home. And then, you know, you have young people of color who will have, and she described, I don't even remember the amount, like a a, a backpack full of drugs she had. You have uh, children of color, who will be caught with a small amount and have like the jail thrown at them for their lives. So uh, all of these are examples of privilege. And, and what I often say to white students is, this awareness raising isn't to get you in a place of being stuck, because you feel so guilty and overwhelmed that you're immobilized. But it is, what am I going to do with my privilege? What what it's, It comes with a responsibility. And as you named, even talking among your friends, because it's one thing to get up at a Black Lives Matter march among strangers and say like, Black Lives Matter. But when you're sitting at Thanksgiving and people are saying racist things, can you have the courage in those moments to speak up and say something? And I know in those spaces, that can be harder to do, but that is the work that is needed.
0: Absolutely. Having those difficult conversations or even, you know, you hear the joke and go, that's not funny. Right.
2: Well, thank you because that helps. Um, white privilege is one of those things that's a touchy subject for us. Because people say, well, I'm not racist. Um, I was uh, living in St. Louis when Michael Brown was killed and do it broke my heart to see how all of a sudden you could see different communities just go one side to the other and immediately decide either for, what happened to Michael or the cop's experience. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I think you're missing the point in a lot of different ways there, but it was heartbreaking because Mm -hmm. the people that would say to you, these are my friends, people who I grew up with in there were like, but I'm not racist. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay. But you are, and you don't know you are. Here's the issue, and let me explain why. And I said this only because I lived here in New York City for years, living up in the Heights Harlem. So, yeah, you know, I guess I am a bit woke. Uh, Careful to use the word. But, you know, simply because when I live in an area, unlike where I grew up in Missouri, where everybody looked like me. um, But St. Louis is a good example because... The city itself is now all suburbs, basically, where people live in communities where everybody looks alike, they go to the same school, they go to the same church. And so they were completely disconnected from what the reality of, of Michael and his family and his community that he had in Ferguson. They were just, they just could not even
1: connect to Yeah, it. and let me show you where the racism becomes even more evident. All the people who were yelling, Blue Lives Matter, Oh. When most recently you had these armed white people marching for the right to have tattoo parlors and get haircuts, and they are in the police officers' faces yelling, holding weapons, and the Blue Lives Matter people were silent. They were absolutely silent until Black people showed up protesting without guns, and now suddenly Blue Lives Matter. So it's like, how, how much are you really committed to these Blue Lives? I think you're really saying White Lives Matter.
0: Wow own it and say it because that's exactly what it was. You know, there are a lot of Christians and people of faith that are involved in the dialogue that's going on right now. People on, on either side are holding on to their faith and using that as a platform for what they're saying. But if if Jesus were here, mm-hmm. and like embodied, not just yes. in my heart, but yes. here, what, yes. what would he be doing? What do you think he would yes. be doing right now?
1: So... Jesus would be with the oppressed people. So that is our understanding as we studied him. Jesus was not with those in power. Jesus was a threat to the status quo. He was a threat to the system because of his stance on equity. That is what was so troubling to them because he said, you all think that it's only you and that you should be at the top. And I have come huh, to shift all of that. I'm preaching to myself <laughs> <laughs> to shift all of that for there to be equity, for there to be justice, for there to be love. And so Jesus would be speaking to the issues. Jesus would be loving, healing, teaching and turning over tables. And so if we want to be Christ-like, what are the tables of injustice and hypocrisy that you are turning over? What is it that you're teaching people to do? And you can't teach with coded language. If I'm going to teach about love in a racist environment, then I have to be willing to say the word racism and then to to be the solution bringers. And the solution is not peace without justice because peace without justice is just asking people to be quiet. Wow. And, and, And what a time, let me say, especially for faith communities, that we are in a time of forced revolution, not only around racism, but because of COVID. So people have had to really interrogate what is the church, right? And, And getting away from this false teaching that it's the building, right? If it is indeed the people, which is what it is, then how do we gather in new ways and how do we address the people? You know, when we look at the letters from the apostles, they spoke to the issues that each community was facing they were not silent those letters were not kumbaya service letters they were addressing the direct issues that were confronting the people and so that is what we're called to do so where are the prophets you know where are the wailing women and wailing men so that you know the church can be the church it it can be our hour we will only make ourselves extinct and dismissed by our silence. But as long as we are present with justice, with love, with compassion, with truth, then you will see a reemergence, a revival of a new church.
2: You know, more people than ever have turned their back to their innate spirituality because of the empire, the, the institution as we know, a church is about the people, not about the building. Are you hopeful? Is this a, a hopeful time for Christians?
1: Yes, it is and let me say that I see transformation happening in two different paths and each person will have to, you know, pick their path. There are people who are called to be change agents from within. So there are going to be those who remain in traditional denominations and well-historied churches and will cultivate and have the heart of the leaders to be able to usher in newness in those spaces. And then there are those who will be called to plant new, and they might not even call them churches. Some people say a get together, a ministry, a church house, or I'm just having some people over, whatever you wanna call it, at the Poetry Coffee House when we can finally get out online. And let me tell you, some of my friends who are founding pastors, planting uh, churches, have said they're not sure they're going back to in-person, that they have discovered something new in this space of online worship, of being able to connect with people from all different places. So there will be those who do the non-traditional, and that is needed and wanted. And then even those who feel called to the traditional space can still do incredible work.
0: It sounds like it's going to be a whole new world. It is a whole new world.
1: Yes, it is. By force, like we've had to. Nobody, even the greatest prophets didn't tell us 2020 was going to be like this. <laughs>
0: That's right. Well, no, yes, it didn't. Oh. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I feel like we could just carry on this conversation mm-hmm. for another yes. hour or two. Uh, but before we wrap up, we'd like to ask, are there any projects yes. that you're working I would on you'd love- like to tell people about?
1: I would love for your listeners to check out my podcast called The Homecoming Podcast. It's about facilitating the journey back home to yourself and it's on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Been going since last July, and so I encourage people to start with the first episode, but then you can skip around depending on which titles kind of speak to you and what you're going through at the time.
2: Awesome. Will definitely Thank you very much, Dr. Damon.
1: You are welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been delightful.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at radicallove.live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As
2: always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine.
0: And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their
2: continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes.